And now um, I'm going to I'm going to um, mute everybody, and then uh, we can go into a guided meditation. Listening to the sound of the bell. And just allowing attention to come inward. And just taking note of the activities to get here this morning. The scurrying, the busyness, the trying to get things sorted out. And we have arrived. We have arrived in the present moment. So using this time as a invitation to go inward and letting the feet connect with the floor allowing the spine to relax and elongate allowing the breath to get deep just take a couple of deep breaths and just noticing if there's tension in the shoulders or in the face or in the back or legs breathing in and letting it release And so there's a a gentle intention to invite tension to release. And we can take the in-breath and we can allow it to energize. So breathing in cool air, allowing it to fill and invigorate, enliven, awaken. And releasing what is stale and old and no longer life-serving, what is used up and spent, but no longer serves. Breathing in is a beginning. Our in-breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Breathing out has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every breath is a cycle of birth and death. Every cycle Every breath is a cycle of beginning and middle and end. And arising, something that is known and watching it dissolve. And we can notice with the arising that there's an uplift, a joyousness, a bubbly buoyancy. And we can notice when the breath is in the middle that it's steady, comforting. And we can notice when we are breathing out there's a quietness, a letting go, 
a stillness. There's not a whole lot to cling to. And so in this way, the breath is a perfect metaphor for life. The cycle of beginning, middle, and end of arising, sustaining, and passing. And we can just be attentive and aware of the impact of breathing. And the impact of allowing attention to settle on breathing. calling from and your name so that we can all know who's on the call. Uh, Suzanne, and I'm calling from Louisville, Colorado. Thank you, Suzanne. Go ahead. Ali from Los Angeles. Uh, nice to hear your voice, Ali. Lenore from Boulder, Colorado. Lovely, Lenore. Nice to hear your voice. And Tim from Boulder, Colorado. Oh, both of you are on. I get a, I get a double. I get a double. <laughs> Good morning, Amma. It's Brian from Palm Springs. Oh, how nice to hear your voice. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you. You sound strong, which is good. I feel good. Thank you. Martha from Minneapolis. Oh, hi, Martha. Welcome. Hi. So this is the um, first session Yanka that we're starting. Oh, my apologies, Yanka. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, Yanka. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is the first uh, of the interactive inquiry calls where we're working with the Eightfold Path. And this is also the first of the interactive inquiry calls where I've got it recorded so that um, if there are people who are interested but not able to hear, then they can listen to a recording at another time. So this is being recorded. And um, the, 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 main, the main text that I'll be working with is Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Noble Eightfold Path. And the subtitle is Way to End of Suffering. And, uh, you know, I love Bhikkhu Bodhi. His, his clarity is just, um, it's formidable. And uh, his writing is, I just find it deep and pertinent and very useful. I think it's fabulous. So, and it's a free PDF. So if anyone wants to find it, um, you can Google it on the, um, the internet and it'll show up a place that you can download the PDF. And so um, 
what the the noble eightfold path is the is the fourth of the um, four noble truths. So in the four noble truths, we have the truth of suffering. We have the the truth of the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And so for the last several months, we've been working with the book The Island. And The Island really is the deep dive into the cessation of suffering. It talks about the many different facets of what that means and the different attitudes and ways of practicing to attain it and to realize it. And so when we're talking about Nibbana, we're talking about the cessation of suffering. And these two things we can know them as being synonymous. And so um, when we uh, look at the Eightfold Path, one of the things about it that's curious is, is that in the Eightfold Path, the first path factor is right view. And right view is defined by understanding the Four Noble Truths. In the Four Noble Truths, as I just mentioned, the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path so here we have two principles fundamental principles within the buddha's teaching and within them they contain each other and so we can see that they're both mutually supportive and interdependent and one of the things about this which is interesting is is, is that you know the four noble truths is really about the um, the, the core structures that we need to contemplate. And the Eightfold Path is really about the external uh, structures that we need to have in place. And so another way of looking at this is, is that this is a way of describing the Dhamma and the Vinaya. The Dhamma are the teachings and the Vinaya are the codes or the ethics or the standards or the external structures that help us live a life of integrity and honesty and uh, realize the goal when we look at the essence of what the buddha taught it's really in some ways incredibly simple he taught about the nature of dukkha and the ending of dukkha and we have seen dukkha is often translated as suffering but really, it, it, it means a whole lot more than pain and misery. Um, you know, the, it, it, this dukkha is the unsatisfactoriness that runs through our lives. It runs through our hearts. It runs through our minds. Sometimes we can experience it as disappointment or as sorrow or grief or as trauma or despair. Sometimes we can experience it as fear. But oftentimes what we notice is this pervasive sense that things are not good enough, that the world's not good enough, that we're not good enough, that no one around us is good enough. And this kind of basic sense of insufficiency or lack is one of the faces of dukkha. But when we look at the teachings of the Buddha, one of the things about that which is so magnificent is, is, is that it's not just that he talks about dukkha, but he talks about, you know, really the causes of dukkha. 
And we can see when we look carefully that, that dukkha is, uh, is rooted in defilement, is rooted in wanting things to be a certain way, not wanting things to be a certain way, or spacing out when we're not able to focus. And that the, the commonality of these different kinds of defilements or resentment or jealousy or envy or worry is ignorance, the basic inability to see things clearly. So when we're looking at uh, um, uh, suffering or dukkha, the way out of dukkha is the, is the way of uprooting ignorance. And since ignorance is not seeing things clearly, then what is needed is to see things as they really are. Not in an intellectual way, not in a way where we've got all the facts and the figures and we've got a 10-year plan, but in a direct way, in a way of direct perception, of knowing, or of wisdom. And so wisdom can be cultivated through a set of conditions that come into being. And these are conditions that we can develop. These conditions are mental factors. So if the goal is the ending of all kinds of stress, of sorrow, of suffering, of dukkha, then the path, the way, is defined by, supported by, the Eightfold Path. So when we look at the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path consists of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And in some ways, the rightness is defined because it keeps us from um, activities that lead to more suffering. In some ways, I've heard modern teachers define right in terms of connected. It keeps us connected into the wheel of web of life, the web of life, and that connection allows less suffering. So in either way, whether it keeps us from doing what is unskillful, or whether it tethers us to a way which is skillful, it's a very powerful reflection, tool, commitment, way of looking at things. And so the Buddha talked about the Eightfold Path as a middle path because it avoids two extremes. One extreme is the tendency that we have of using sensual pleasures to extinguish dissatisfaction by gratifying desire. And so the Buddha taught repeatedly and sometimes in a way that was actually incredibly fierce, that the ultimate end of suffering requires relinquishing sensual desire. Relinquishing sensual desire doesn't mean that we stop experiencing pleasure. 
it means that we stop grasping at pleasure as a way of ameliorating our displeasure. The other extreme is the practice of self-mortification. The attempt to gain liberation by afflicting the body and denying its basic needs. So when we look at the middle path, we're not looking at a microsecond as we navigate from one extreme to the other extreme, but a path that transcends the errors that each of these two extremes contain. Sensual indulgence has the air in it of thinking that temporary happiness is a path to lead to lasting happiness. But the problem with that is it accentuates the mind that craves and it leaves us feeling often more unsatisfied. But the practice of abandoning sensual desire is not about tormenting the body or denying its needs. Rather, it's a movement into a mental training and a clear understanding that our body is our vehicle. It must be kept healthy. We must take care. We must learn how to inhabit our body. both to understand what the mental components are like, but also to understand what they are like as a correlate in our body. So the Eightfold Path are not sequential steps, but they all come together to support each other. They build on each other. Eventually, the components of the path can be found in each moment. But until that level of development is realized, there's some semblance of a progressive path. In this way, when we look at the Eightfold Path, it can be divided into three components. A sila component, which is comprised of virtue or integrity. A samadhi component, which is comprised of stillness or collectedness, and a panya component, which is comprised of wisdom. The samadhi or the stillness grouping consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The sila component consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The panya component consists of right view and right intention. So sila, or integrity, of right speech, right action, and right livelihood are really very important in the Eightfold Path. It isn't just a question of affirming the precepts and in order to be a good Buddhist. But when we look at the power of the way we make choices in the present moment related to our ability to navigate our sense of what is ethically correct, our sense of what is honest and true, 
our sense of what our relationships dictate, our sense of what our cultural expectations are, our sense of wanting to be uh, secure and wanting to feel confident that the relationship is going to last, then all of a sudden we're in a deep dive into some very, very rich and juicy territory. And so in this way, Sila isn't about Buddhism for babies. It's actually a kind of like cutting edge, rich inquiry into the way we navigate the present moment and the choices that we make. So as an introduction, this is an introduction to the Eightfold Path and an introduction to Sila as a a significant component of the path. And so I'm going to pause here and now invite you to share or to comment about what it is that you heard or how you were impacted by this. And we can have a discussion. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Yes, good morning. I'm just wondering, Ali. I know you're uh, uh, talking mostly on the Sila part. But on the Panya, I was just wondering if you could open up more the differences between the right view and right intentions. And uh, if you don't want to get into that, that's fine. I could, you know, hold on to my question to the next time. But if you don't yeah, mind. I think what I'd like to do, I mean, it's a really important question, Ali. And I think, it's, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to stay uh, with one a little bit more with understanding or feeling comfortable or questions around the middle path and questions around the sila component. And then when okay. we get to the, to the panya component, then, then that would be a, a fabulous question for unpacking at that time. Okay. Thank you. Does anybody else have um, something to share or bring up about the um, the introduction or the setting the stage of the Eightfold Path and and the Middle Path, the Sila component of the path, the way you practice with that? Hi, Amma. It's Tim. Good morning, Tim. I find myself um, a lot of the time in, in the past and listening to you speak about Sila, there's sort of this sort of gut reaction of guilt, of this sort of sense of, um, I, I mean, I, I know having read about it that it, it's different than sort of the concept of sin and the concept of Ten Commandments and such, um, but it's hard not to feel a little bit of resonance of that. I just so wonder. that's an important 
that's Tim. That's a brilliant question, or it's a brilliant comment because you know we 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 live in a Judeo-Christian culture, and today's Easter Sunday, and so you know it's like the one of the significant like opportunities for for the you know the guilt the guilt complex is is it's not that that um, Easter is a manifestation of guilt, but the whole Judeo-Christian teachings really has a a powerful impact on the way that we look at ourselves and the way that we look at the world. And so it's natural when we've been conditioned that we bring that conditioning to whatever it is that we are working with. It's natural. I mean, it would be unnatural for it not to be that way. So the Buddha's teaching around sila is is, is that, first of all, this is not something that is imposed. There, the, the only way that people are observing sila is because they choose to. And even in the formal ceremony of reaffirming the refuges and the precepts, as monastics, we wait until they are requested. We don't just give them. We wait. So, okay, so then we have this component of feeling like, okay, the thing about the the precepts is is that it activates the sense of like this perpetual feeling of not being good enough you know i can't keep them well enough i can't keep them good enough or the sense of of having done something wrong and then we need to come back into our intention and check out and see okay is it actually the behavior or is it this lingering self-view that is imposing itself in this context Because it asks, this question is asking us to move into what is the source or the origin of this malaise? Is it actually coming because of the fact that I have regret or remorse about something I've done? Or is this basic sense of not feeling good enough is being put onto the precept standard because it, it, it's there every it's everywhere it's it's in everything and so why shouldn't it be with the way that i keep my precepts <laughs> so we need to get a crowbar and actually get some leverage under this and figure out what's underneath it you know where is it coming from because in terms of the buddha's teachings the buddha was not interested in anybody um taking on the precepts as an external authority that was not the intention. Yet that is our human experience, that we experience the precepts as being from the outside. Mm-hmm. Until we understand how to navigate it from the inside, how to actually understand that that whole process of looking at the way that I make choices around honesty and what I say and what I don't say and the result is my choice. It's not somebody else's choice that they're imposing on me. And that choice is actually very, very rich choice. Because in order to really look at all of that, all of a sudden we're in a deep dive into our own sense of security or insecurity, our cultural expectations, the particular nature of the relationship, the sense of expectation of what I do and don't do and whether I rock the boat or don't rock the boat, you know whether I speak the truth or I'm just polite and going along with it because I don't want to offend or upset or cause anyone to feel uh, disturbed. 
And so well, then we have to check and say, well, what is my priority? Is my priority to be honest? Or is my priority to make somebody feel good with some kind of marshmallow goo that has no substance in it? So this whole question about about the sense of guilt and shame and integrity is rich because there's so many different components to it. And also it's a very normal and natural process in our in our the way that we have been all acculturated that we experience authority as external. We don't experience it as internal. And so even if the Buddha made it so that it was not possible to take the precepts unless you requested them, we still feel like it's an external authority. We don't connect with our own choice and volition of I'm doing this because I see the value in it. It feels like it's coming from outside and it feels like somebody's looking and going to punish me if I do something wrong. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the Judeo-Christian guilt thing that we all have internalized. So I've just spoken a lot and said a lot. How does that land for you, Tim? Uh it's really helpful. I, I hadn't thought about the degree to which, even though I think I was aware that it's internal, that I was feeling it as external. Um, so I think that that's it, a helpful way to get some perspective on it. So another thing that's also really important to know is, is that within the Buddha's teachings, there's absolutely no value and use for guilt whatsoever. It has a completely useless commodity. The only thing that it serves is to become vigilant to watch it arise. That's the only useful purpose it serves. Remorse is very different because, you see, one of the characteristics of guilt is is that it solidifies a bad person. I'm bad. I did something. I did something wrong. Remorse sees it in terms of cause and effect. When there's this action, there's this result. But there isn't a bad person that is the originator of it. Mm-hmm. it. It doesn't solidify the sense of self. It reinforces cause and effect. And so what we need to do, and it's a, not an easy thing to do, is we need to distill out of guilt remorse and regret. Remorse and regret sees the cause and effect relationship of something and the unskillful result and it does not reinforce the sense of it being in me, from me, due to me. It's not self-identified. But it is related to cause and effect. So it's not saying that there's no responsibility. It just doesn't solidify a solid, separate, bad person that's done it. And that's a huge thing to learn how to, to sift and sort regret and remorse out of guilt. Because we have tons of guilt.
And guilt doesn't serve us in any useful way. So in order to compost it and turn it into something that's useful, we need to extract out those particular components from it. So how does that land for you, Tim? Yeah, that's helpful. That makes a lot of sense. And it's I, a vigilance. It's an absolute vigilance because the first thing that happens when we wake up in the morning is that we feel like we've done something wrong. I mean, we haven't said yeah. anything. We haven't even gotten our feet on the floor and we feel like we've done something wrong. Yeah. Amma, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, could you speak more to the um, what caught my attention is the the marshmallow you were talking about telling telling the truth and this marshmallow trying to make everything be nice so you know I, I don't know about you Suzanne but I grew up with really strong conditioning that you know my job in the world was to make other people feel good and um, and that whatever that was needed in order to do that was what I was supposed to do. And so if not speaking the truth or something that would support somebody else feeling good, then that was my job. And then I began to realize that, well, when I did that, I usually felt, you know, like kind of like fuzzy or foggy or like I didn't feel like this kind of, in a sense of integrity in myself, I felt this kind of mush, you know, slightly rotten mush. It was not something that I felt, oh, this feels right, you know. But to go against that feeling, it feels like I'm going to die, you know. To actually speak my truth when my conditioning is telling me that I'm supposed to please somebody, it's really scary. It's really intimidating. It feels like it's something terrible is going to happen. But it, it doesn't usually. <laughs> it just it feels that way because the conditioning is so strong. There's, a, there's some ego identification with doing that. And then when we stop doing that, there's ego death. And that's what's actually dying. So for a lot of our conversation is, is superficial and, and, and dishonest. We're not actually speaking the truth of the moment. We're not connected to the truth of the moment, and we're not articulating it. And so instead, we've got this kind of like, you know, a quick response or a marshmallow goo response or make everybody feel good response or, you know, I look like I'm capable, competent on top of the world response. And it can have nothing to do with reality, you know. Now, it doesn't mean on the other side that, you know, we have to pour out our life story to every person that we meet, you know, in five seconds. You know, it's not, it's not that, but there's, there's, there's a level of, of, of lack of disclosure, which is the norm, which is not actually conducive for anybody. Does that resonate, Suzanne? Yes, it does. It does very much. Yeah. And so then we each of us have a question, you know. So we get into these situations, and like, you know, you know, 
you, you know, you've just been through surgery. You've had a terrible break in your leg. You know, somebody asks you how you are, and you can say, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you can say, no, well, I was, you know, I was it's asking done it more. I was asking it more in terms of um, a, a situation has come up where, um, you know, a, a friend has come to me over and over with basically the same issue, and um, I felt that my job as a friend was just to, uh-huh, uh-huh, and not tell her, you know, the truth of what I saw as her part in it. And what was happening is the truth is I, I have been going dead and we just had a horrible rift around it because of, you know, what she perceives as my not listening. And I said, you know, it's true that I wasn't listening, but I realized that what I've been doing is because I wasn't willing to speak the truth because I just wanted to make nice is that I have been going to sleep in listening to her. And so that's how that really resonates with me. So, Suzanne, one of the things that I, excuse me, I just saw it swallowed something wrong. So I'm a little bit, um, <clears throat> my voice hasn't come back yet. One of the things that I've learned to um, pay attention to is to my body signals. And when my body starts to, to there's a signal, I start to withdraw. I start to lose interest, I start to tighten up, I start to go numb, I start to get distracted. All of those are a signal that there's something happening where my needs are not being met. And if I get really super curious and very focused on when that happens, it's a very clear point where a person is believing their story, they're not actually relating to me. I've lost interest. Now, when I am on target and I communicate what's happening to me, it's totally in service of the truth. It's not in service of anything other than the truth. And it takes a certain amount of finesse, I grant you. It takes a certain amount of skill to figure out how do you actually communicate the truth in a way that actually is kind and supportive and truthful. But there are times in relationships where people get in such a rut where they can't actually, they can't see it, they can't know it, they can't pull themselves out by it. And whether they're going to be able to do that or not, it's not helpful for you to be uh, complicit in it by making them feel good about the fact that they're stuck in a rut that they've dug themselves into. Okay. Right. It's another weird manifestation of codependency. You know, I will make you feel good <clears throat> as long as you're staying in this ditch that you put yourself in. It's like, no, <laughs> I don't feel good, and I'm not going to make you feel good, and I don't want to play. We need to find a different game. This is not working for me. And so your body is going to have a very clear signaling of, okay, I've passed the limit of feeling like this person is actually making any progress. We're just in loops, repeating the same thing again and again and again. There's no new progress. 
You need a new game. Right. Right. Rather than to affirm that this is fine and this is okay and this feels great and it doesn't feel great, it doesn't feel fine, there's not a real genuine connection that's happening. So you don't need to become their therapist, but what you can just say is, is I feel frustrated, I feel like we've been talking in circles. So you can speak from the immediacy of what's absolutely true for you. And I don't know how to stay connected with you in this because I can see something that I don't see you're able to accept. And that's where my frustration is. So absolutely clear, honest speaking is sometimes really uh, helpful because it actually illuminates the, the, the trench that they've gotten themselves stuck into and it actually is part of the process of illuminating how they put themselves there. And the fact that you don't want to play. Right. So we have all kinds of ideas about what being a good friend is. And part of our idea about what being a good friend is, is is that when somebody jigs themselves a ditch and is in it, we're supposed to hang out and play with them in the ditch. And it's like, well, no, that's not my idea about what a being a friend is, you know. And so, you know, we have to actually reexamine what we feel like being a friend actually means. And for me, you know, helping somebody stay stuck in something that is not life-affirming to anybody is not, it's not kind, it's not compassionate, it's not being a good friend, it's not about waking up, it's not about anything that I want to support. And it is a scary shift to move into the direction of speaking that because one of the things that we need is to feel like our connection is secure. Right. And so our fear is, is is that if we actually speak the truth that we're going to lose our friend. Right. And so we have to navigate the fear of our own vulnerability as we enter into the territory of speaking the truth. What is more important? And, you know, that's a genuine question. What's more important right now? The feeling, the sense that I have a friend that I can rely on, even if what we're doing is playing in a ditch that is actually not serving anybody? Or is it more important for me to actually begin to move in the direction of speaking the truth in service of getting out of the ditch? And it might be that we can't be friends. You know, that might be a consequence of speaking the truth, is just that we might not be able to be friends. But what is more important? And it's a fair question. It's not like there's one right answer to that question. But we have to navigate those questions in order to be able to move in the direction of freedom or, you know, a sense of, well, you know, for right now, I feel so vulnerable with everything that I'm going to that I'm not in a position of risking the friendship. Uh, that's the truth. That's the truth right now. But at least when it's the truth and you're clear about it, you know where you stand. It's not mush, you know. So how does that leave you, Suzanne? Well, it's, you know, I it's 
it's really um it's really it really speaks to me. I mean, because what happened is we've had a rift in the friendship because I fell asleep during the conversation and you know, and she basically accused me of always falling asleep during, you know, what I see has been an ongoing conversation of the past several years, you know, which is a rut. And you know, and what it was it was all put on on me. And, you know, like what what it has really, I mean, what it has really done to me is woken me up to, again, how much I want the the path of the Dhamma. And then so, and then so to, you know, and it's, it's funny because I talked to other friends and, you know, about this and it was like, well, no, you can't say that to her because it's not nice. You know, but yeah, then, well, we all need to have lessons in being a bitch. Absolutely, we need lessons in being a bitch because the world has told us that if we are actually living our truth and speaking the truth, we are a bitch. So what right. we need to do is we need to actually take that up and own it and have training in it. We need to learn how to be a bitch because this kind of being a bitch is life-affirming, it's empowered, it's clear, it's grounded, and it's profoundly loving. But the world will say that that is being a bitch. So we turn it on its head and we say, yes, that's what I am. I'm a bitch. And I am in a training program to become a bitch because this is the kind of values I want to aspire towards. Right, right. Yeah, because what I can really see that my keeping silent in this issue has created more problems. Because That's basically, right. because I was not being honest, you know, and I was instead yes. going to sleep yes. instead yes. of being honest. And that's what happens before we have the courage, because in order to have the courage to speak the truth, you have to be willing to be a bitch. And that's difficult for most of us. Right. Hang on a second. Somebody's just at my door. I'm going to pause you. I'll be right back. My apologies. I had a neighbor. We had a big garden day, and somebody brought a bunch of tools, and he was just wanting to find out about bringing them back. And so um, my apologies for pausing. But yes, this is very rich territory because it actually evokes a lot for all of us in terms of what's actually going on here. It's not at all simple. And so it is often the case that our choice is to go to sleep. And, and then we have to pay the consequences because, you know, it's true. It's infuriating when you're in a relationship with somebody and somebody's going to sleep. But the underlying basis of that is, is that you're going to sleep because there's something actually you need to say and you haven't found a way of saying it yet. So, yeah. Right. Powerful. Right. Very powerful. Good. Yeah. So let me just um, pause and invite anybody else who's on the call to um, share either impact of what it is that you've heard from this, these interactions, nor um, alternatively a new question or a new comment. Um, this is Brian. 
Yes, Brian. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, I'd just like to just share something that came, uh, I've been working with this a while myself, and one of the guidelines that um, was given to me by, I believe it was Shopper Rinpoche, was to try to communicate in a way that doesn't embarrass somebody. And it was an interesting guideline for me because it sounded too kind, but when I use that as a focus, it always kind of guides me in two really important ways. One is um, that when I'm going to talk to the person, I'm going to really focus on not making them wrong and just sort of sharing my experience. And then the other one is to sort of, rather than pointing out what's going wrong or what I don't like, is to just really talk about what I want and, and keep it all really positive in the sense of this isn't working for me, but it's not, it's not because of everything that's going wrong, it's because this is what I want and we don't have it. And the reason I want it is because I want to be closer and have this deeper communication. Anyway, it was just those two things that when I was given the guideline of not embarrassing them, it just makes me look at the way of how I can be kind, how I can tell them what I want instead of making them wrong. And that really seems to be helpful. Thank you, Brian. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant share. And part of the reason why it's so brilliant is because actually learning how to communicate skillfully is a long process. And that's not something that we're learning. We learn in school. It's not something that we are shown in, in our workplace. It's something that we have to, you know, through trial and error and, and having exposure to skillful models, pick it up. And one of the things that I really loved about what you just shared, Brian, is, is, is that a communication is effective when there's a sense of really caring about another person and that you're, you're sharing this because it's, it's, it's in your, it, it, you, you have their back. It, you, you want the best for them. Okay, and so when when a person really feels that you care for them, and and that that's the basis or the reason why you can say things that might not be easy to say, that's a very different experience than feeling like you don't care about them or you're just criticizing them or you feel that there's something wrong that they need to figure out. And so the the things that Brian was talking about in terms of the things that I want and the wanting to be close comes from that perspective of, of, of both what is true for me, the way I value the friendship, the vulnerability that I experience about the possibility of risking losing the friendship, and the fact that what I'm really interested in is, is, is a sense of, of well-being, that that's what I want to support. Yeah, and the focus is, is, is on love instead of feeling like a target and needing to get something out of it that way as well. It's really right. great. Thank you, Alma. That was wonderful. Yeah. So there's a couple of resources that are useful in this. And one is uh, Marshall Rosenberg's book, um, Nonviolent Communication. And then there's another book about crucial conversations which is also really useful. And there's a third book, and it's called Getting Real, and I haven't read it yet, but it looks awesome. And these are different resources that are um, supportive of, of learning how to communicate in a way which is skillful. And then 
of course, the Buddha, I mean, you know, when in, in the monastic discipline, there's all kinds of, 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 of um, all kinds of things uh, in terms of codes and conducts and, and frames and references. And the, the instructions around speech take up more than anything else. It's, it's huge in terms of the, 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 the skill, the structures, what's needed, the kind of basic guidelines. And, and in the Buddha's instructions, the basic guidelines for right speech are to say what is true. And so if you're speaking from your own experience, that is indisputable. It's true. If you're telling somebody who they are, what they are, what's wrong with them, that's, that's um, conjecture. You don't know that. To speak at the right time. So if you've got something that's delicate or a little bit edgy, you know, that's not something to have uh, a conversation is you're passing in the hallway or, you know, when somebody's running out the door and they've got an appointment. So to make sure that the time is right, to speak with a heart of kindness so that your intention is not to dump your frustration or irritation or agitation onto another person, but to actually use the context as a way of sharing your care and the way that you value your contact with them. And then to check and see if the things that are aggravating you about them are things that you have had to deal with yourself. And if that's the case, own it. Because it's really, um, it's not about, you know, any of us having, you know, one up on somebody else. It's about all of us trying to support each other towards waking up. And if I see something that you do that's something I have also challenged by, you know, that I've had to wrestle with myself, it's a different sharing when I, when I, when I acknowledge that. There's five things, and I'm forgetting the fifth one. Does anyone remember? What's the fifth thing? Say, the right, say what's true, not what's, say at the right time. Speak with a heart of kindness. Um, check this see that if you've done this yourself, what's the fifth thing in the basic guidelines for right speech? Can anyone remember? Is it helpful? Is it not the last Is time? it helpful? Thank you, Yanka. I was, uh, yes, yes. Okay. So there are things that we can say which are true, but it's not helpful. So the other day, uh, somebody showed up on my doorstep who was suicidal. And at the moment when she was suicidal, she was telling me what was going on in her mind, and she was out of her mind. I mean, she was experiencing paranoid delusions, okay? Now, it was not going to be helpful for me to tell her, <laughs> you're out of your mind, sweetheart. <laughs> That's not useful. <laughs> it's not helpful. It was true. She was out of her mind. She was experiencing paranoid delusions. It was not useful. It was not helpful. So the context of what is it is that a person can navigate in that situation that's going to help them actually get a little bit more ground and stability. So I wasn't not saying that because of a marshmallow goo that I was trying to make her feel okay. I was not saying what was truthful because there was nothing in saying that that would have been beneficial to her. So let's move into meditation.
And wherever we are, whatever's going on, just pausing and dropping in and noticing what's present, noticing what's alive, what's present, whether there's a feeling of excitement or a feeling of agitation or a feeling of overwhelm, whether there's resonance or dissonances, allowing your feet to connect with the earth, allowing your body to relax, coming into present time, allowing your spine to elongate, feeling your breath, Now, for each of us, wherever we are physically, geographically, and wherever we are in our practice, just take a moment and notice bring attention to our aspiration. What is it? What is our aspiration in our practice? Is it to be free from headaches? Is it to live with more ease? Is it to not have more suffering? Is it to not create suffering for others? Is it to be completely free from all suffering? What is it? And as we navigate the various different kind of voices that we experience of feeling insufficient or not good enough or a sense of shame, like somehow we're fundamentally tarnished, just touch into that aspiration, that treasure trove of gold, of jewels, of potency, of potential. Breathe into that. Dust it off. Let it shine. And know that even if we have mind states where we feel insufficient or ashamed or confused or we fall asleep or we're asleep at the switch, Whenever we make a mistake, a mistake is not a disavowing of our aspiration. It's an opportunity to reconnect with what is our value, what is our aspiration, what is our longing in the world, what is our deepest desire. And so as we navigate a sense of feeling connected to our aspiration that can give us ballast in the extremely important and very challenging work of separating out regret and remorse from guilt. And 
as we do that, as we separate out regret and remorse from guilt, then that can affirm, it can strengthen our determination, our affirmation, our aspiration. And as we strengthen our aspiration, we polish, we brighten, we support what is the most precious thing in our world. And so now, just changing gears, just taking a moment and acknowledging the many different things that you could have done this morning and the fact that every single one of us is here together on this call across the country, listening, speaking, talking about things that matter, and allowing the blessing power of our time together to spread out on the winds and be part of the water, saturate the earth, Let it move into our friends and our family and our colleagues and our work, into the places that are war-torn, into the climate catastrophes that are recent, into the places where people are sad or hurting or lonely, so that all beings everywhere can benefit from our practice here together today. shares we can take a couple of shares closing shares comments and then we'll finish with closing announcements this is Andrea I just wanted to appreciate the conversation today and it was um timely for some probably difficult conversations I'll be having in the next week or so and um, also helped me to laugh out loud. Thank you, Amma. Yes, Andrea. Closing comments for anyone? Only mentioned three books about the right speech, the crucial conversations, uh, nonviolent communication, and what was the third one? I'm sorry, you said you bought it. Maybe what I'll do is I'll post it on Facebook, and I'll okay. put it I'll put it in the oh, calendar, the Awakening Truth calendar for the interactive inquiry for today. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Does this um, this, um, happen once a month, this interactive inquiry, or is it every week? Interactive inquiry happens every Sunday. We have a team of facilitators. Yanka, who's on the call, is one of the facilitators, and Catherine Wolf is another, and David Wetton is a third, and I'm a fourth, and Aya Satima, she sometimes facilitates. So we've got a team of facilitators, and there's the schedule is in the... Uh, Awakening Truth newsletter. Suzanne, are you still okay. not getting the newsletter? No, I did get it, and yeah, I've I've got it now, but I didn't. Yeah, I did. I I know that Lulu posts on Facebook, but I know that I've only seen the one for you, unless she I just haven't be been posting. aware of them. Well, you know, our we've got some. The the publicity team has had a little bit of a of a speed bump in terms of who's doing what, and so it has been that everyone all of the facilitators should have their uh, their that should be facil- should be announced, and I don't know that that's actually has been what's been happening. I think so, but I'm the, not is sure. The, is the access code going to be the is it the same all the time? I mean, like if I say today's access, yeah, it's code, always the same. Got it. It's always the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's always okay. the same code and it's the same in time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So closing shares, one more closing share. Um, this is Kat. I joined late. Um, but it's just so lovely to hear all your voices and thank you. Thank you. I really really needed this this morning, so yeah. Glad you joined us. Very glad you joined. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so announcements? Are there any announcements? I have an announcement. Um, I'm going to be traveling. uh, I leave on the 9th. I'll be back on the 29th. On the 10th of May, I'm going to be uh, hosting an interactive inquiry, same time. But the theme is going to be not on the Eightfold Path. It's going to be working with climate destabilization and what comes up and how to deal with it. So that's going to be a, a shift from the Eightfold Path theme. But on the this trip, I'm going to be, you know, I'll be in different places uh, and talking and teaching. And one of the things that I'm going to be mentioning um, in, in the, uh, you know, in, the, in in my talks and stuff, is that when people are interested in in asking about helping out, one of the things that is needed is we need to have a team of volunteer coordinators. So we've got a sound team and a retreat committee and we've got a planning team and we've got a publicity team. We need a team of people who are able to take um, the people who want to help and welcome them and help figure out what would be a good fit in terms of what our needs are. So I'm just putting that word out because what would be brilliant is if there were like three people in one group and three people in another group and together there was enough support so that it wasn't an overwhelming task for any one person. So if that, if that um, strikes your uh, curiosity or interest and you think that either you would have uh, uh, the capacity to do that or somebody, a few of you in your group, then be in contact with me uh, through the info or tanasanti at awakeningtruth.org email address and we can talk further about what is involved. It's a, it's a big thing. It's not a small thing. But it's possible, you know. It's possible. It just needs to be. It needs. There needs to be enough people 
holding it so that nobody's doing too much. And Yanka, do you know who's facilitating next week? I, I believe it's me. Oh, would you Again, like to, yeah. would you like to say anything about um, would you like to say anything about uh, next week's call? Do you have a theme yet for it? Well, uh, not exactly, but what I've been doing since I'm st- studying Analayo, uh, Satipatthana yes. uh, book. Yes. Uh, we did um, functions and characteristics of Sati yes. last week. Yes. And I don't know, we did hindrances, so maybe aggregate body, I don't know. I'll, I'll, um, I'll think about it. But something okay, about sounds- something from Satipatthana, yes. Okay, so Satipatthana is the foundations of mindfulness, and Venerable Analayo is a really, really lovely monk, and he wrote a book called Satipatthana, the path, uh, I don't remember the subtitle. Anyway, that was the path to realization. The direct path to realization. And that book, the Satipatthana, was his PhD thesis. So he has a PhD, and he teaches at Hamburg University in Germany, and he's a lovely, lovely, lovely monk. And it's nice and coincidental because he's about to be starting a Satipatthana 10-day retreat at Spirit Rock, and he is such an excellent teacher, and his understanding of Satipatthana is so clear that the retreat was booked out ages ago, and they had it as a lottery of who could attend it because it's such a, a, an important retreat. It's a fundamental practice in uh, the Theravadan tradition, and he's a brilliant teacher. So Yanka will be working with the book, Satipatthana, the book that he wrote, in a section of it. And this kind of material is absolutely important material in our practice. So I highly encourage you to show up. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for everything and everyone. Yes, good. Thank you. Uh, see you when we do. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. 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 Thank, Thank you. Thank you all.